0: Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. My prayer this morning for us is that we would hold on to the substance and not chase the shadow. I don't know about you, but I enjoy walks. I love going for walks with anyone, really, whoever wants to go for a walk. So if you want to go for a walk, shoot me a text, send me an email. We can go for a walk together. Um, but I love going on walks with my with my family. And walks with my family, they they have many different emotions and experiences when we go on them, but one of the things that, that often happens if we're walking at the right time of the day and the sun is out is there's a shadow. The sun hits us and it casts a shadow, right? And my kids love this. They think it's great. They think we're so tall, right? If the sun is at the right angle, it hits my body and it casts this massive shadow. And my kids don't quite understand um, numbers, so they think that my long shadow, it makes me the age 90-90. <laughs> so that's 9,090. I, if, as if I could even live to be that age. But that's the, that's the number that they've picked for my very long shadow. It's 90-90. Look at dad, he's 90-90 years old. How funny. And it's an enjoyable experience for us and then I tell them that they're like 80-90 or whatever the shadow makes them. And it's, and it's fun and it's funny and, but a shadow, it reveals where I am, right? I mean, if they were to lose me, they could look at the shadow, follow the shadow up and find me. And so my kids don't have a relationship with my shadow. They have a relationship with me. I don't have a relationship with my kids' shadow, but I have a relationship with them. And that's what Paul is really getting at here in this text. He wants us to know that in the Christian life, we oftentimes there's, there's shadows and, and they help guide us and shadows can help point us to Jesus who is the substance. That's what Paul is communicating to us. He doesn't want us to get he doesn't want us to try and build a relationship with a shadow, because that's foolish. Shadows come and go. Shadows have no substance, but they only point you to a substance. And so he is saying that that man-made religion, that religious philosophy, religious tradition, and just religion in and of itself, it's like a shadow that points us to Christ, the substance. Last week, as we studied through Colossians, we looked at six through, verses six through 15. And Paul warned us not to be led astray or not to be held captive by human philosophy and tradition. He's saying that those things can be shadows. They can point you to truth, but they are not in and of themselves truth. Philosophy and tradition can point you to the truth, but they're not the truth. And so this week, as we continue on in verses 13 through 23, we see Paul warning us of something similar but a little bit different, and that is religion. Religion. Religion and self-made religion or religious tradition can be a shadow that helps point us to the truth, but if we, get, if we get lost in the shadow, we lose the substance. Essentially what Paul is saying is that Jesus plus, he's saying that we in the church and the church in Colossians 2,000 years ago, he's warning them, he's saying, you tend to add something to Jesus. So Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the one that we worship. We sang it this morning, Christ alone in Christ alone, my hope is found. Christ alone, cornerstone. We sing that, but we very often and quickly abandon that, and we begin to add things to Jesus. So if you've been around the church for any period of time, um, oftentimes what, what you'll find, and you'll experience this if you're new to the church, you're, you are going to be hurt at some point by somebody adding something to Jesus. And putting it on you, and it'll create a burden. Last week, again, Paul said it's philosophy and tradition. This week, look at verse 23. He says that these, and we're going to unpack what these are that he's talking about, but he says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting what? A little bit of interaction in promoting what? Self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if you hang around Christians, and if you're a human being, you realize pretty quickly that you have a propensity to sin. Do we not? We have a propensity to sin. We we lie, we cheat, we steal, we deceive, we use other people for our ends, we're manipulative. On our best day were those things. And so we have a propensity towards sin. And so as you join the church, as you spend time around church people, what we tend to do is, is build self-made religion around ourselves to try and keep us from sinning, to try and stop us from sinning. Last week, as Paul talked about, it could be philosophy, it could be tradition, or this week, self-made religion. We try to add things to Jesus. Jesus plus an accountability group. Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. When we pile things on and we, we think that we can safeguard ourselves so that we would become um, more holy, that we would sin less, and we would become more like Jesus. And what does Paul say? He says these have an appearance of wisdom. And some of them may have wisdom underneath, and, and we'll get into some nitty gritty here and talk about this. But he's saying that, that religious practice, self made religion, has an appearance of wisdom. Does it not? I mean, I know we've all wrestled with this. We, we hear how different people do different devotional studies or different accountabilities that they're in, and, th- and we think, that seems wise. If only I did that, maybe I would sin less. And then we try what someone else did, and we find ourselves not sinning less. It has an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Jesus plus something really equals nothing for our salvation. Jesus plus rules Jesus plus experience Jesus plus whatever it is equals nothing and here's what Paul's getting at here he's given us three things number 1 Jesus plus religious observance he's saying the church here in colossia is being led to believe that if they would if they would observe the right religious holidays and festivals that they would become more holy that they would be able to stop the indulgence of the flesh that God would be more pleased with them, that they would be close, more closely connected to their Heavenly Father if just they would observe religious holidays. Look at this, verse 16. Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbath." These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul is saying there is this is directly tied to Judaism, the Old Testament worship of Yahweh, and the law and the systems that God gave in the Old Testament. He's saying those are shadows that point you to Christ, the substance. Now Christ the Messiah is here, so the Old Testament laws, the Old Testament festivals, he says specifically festivals or new moons or Sabbath. These are Old Testament festivals, Old Testament observance, observance, religious observance, that people in the church were, some were following them, and that's okay. He doesn't condemn the practice. He doesn't say you have to stop doing all of your religious observance. But he's saying don't let anyone judge you for not doing them the way that they think you are supposed to do. Self-made religion. So God had handed down the law. He had handed down Old Testament festivals and the Sabbath. He had handed down some rules. And, but what Paul is saying is that they have taken those now, and Christ the substance has come. All of the Old Testament law pointed us to Jesus, and now they're looking around Jesus, back at the law, and saying, let's keep doing these things. And Paul is saying, these things were in place for you to know that when the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, came he would be your savior. And we do this in the church as well, don't we? we? We think that only we would become more spiritual, more holy, if we could just do the right religious observances. Maybe some of you have felt judged because you participate in Halloween celebrations. And maybe you've grown up in churches or you've known Christian people who said, well, you can't be a good Christian and celebrate Halloween. Or I've heard people say that you can't decorate Christmas trees. Actually, I have a friend who pastors a church and there's a family in that church that doesn't go to their church for the month of December because they put a Christmas tree up in the sanctuary. Religious observance. We tend to do this as human beings, don't we? We, we tend to judge one another based off of what we feel convicted about and we tend to add to Jesus certain religious observances. Again, there might be wisdom in religious observance. I'm not saying that nothing matters and we don't think critically about what we do and we don't do. But what Paul seems to be getting at here is that we can't add religious observance to Jesus as a formula for holiness. He's saying, in fact, often what it will do is it will lead you astray. It'll have the appearance of wisdom and we'll start judging one another and we'll say, so-and-so is not as holy as I am because they observe this holiday. Or so-and-so works on Sunday. They're not very spiritual. I I take Sundays off. Well, actually, I don't take Sundays off. I can't take Sundays off. So let's throw that one out, please, the whole Sabbath concept. But we need to think deeper. What is God getting at? Jesus is the one who said Sabbath was created for the man, not man for the Sabbath. He creates a day of rest to bless us, not as a religious observance activity that 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 would make us holier, because it doesn't. And so Paul is warning about that. Be careful of adding religious observance to Jesus. The next one, Jesus plus religious abstinence. And here he gets into this. In verse 16, he gets into it. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So there were people saying that if food was sacrificed to idols, we need to abstain from it because that's an Old Testament law. And so there's judgment going on in the church because people have different convictions about eating food sacrificed to idols and different convictions about what they can and can't drink. And he's saying, don't judge one another. Let no one judge you based off of religious abstinence. And he goes on, verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is believing that matter is bad and spirit is good. And so there's kind of this false humility where they would shun possessions. Because because matter can lead us to sin, right? We We can make an idol out of things. And so people in the church were trying to be very holy by saying if we can make an idol out of created things, let's not have any created things. Let's sell our house, let's sell our boat, let's sell our TV, let's sell our all of our clothes except for one pair and let's live kind of this poverty gospel mindset. And and that'll create us in us a more a more holy posture and approach to God and and Paul is warning them be careful of religious observance. He's not saying don't do it of religious abstinence and we need to expand our mind to the word abstinence that it's just from premarital sex. Okay, abstinence from anything. Abstinence from food, abstinence from drink. I mean, we we divide into camps over we can drink alcohol, we can't drink alcohol, we can watch movies, we can't watch movies, we can watch G-rated movies, we can't watch PG-13 rated movies, we can watch Christian movies. Actually, I don't hear anyone promoting that because usually they're terrible. Um, (laughs) But we can can fight over these things, can we not? And, and, And Paul is warning us, don't get caught up in this. This will lead you astray. Jesus plus your personal convictions of religious abstinence does not create holiness. It might help in holiness in you as an individual, but you can't slap this down on the church, on your brothers and sisters, and say this is what you have to abstain from if you want to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. Paul is warning the church in Colossia, and by extension us, of this. And now the, the third one. Jesus plus religious experience. He gets into this again in verse eighteen. He says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels. There's some experience here. You can see angels. You can you can you understand what the angels do? There's this this mystical kind of experience happening, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So what Paul is saying here is this religious experience. You don't have to add religious or spiritual experience to Jesus in order to become holy and to overcome your sin and to receive God's, God's affirmation. This can happen in the church as well, doesn't it? I mean, you think about emotionalism. And look, I, I love what Paul's saying here. He's saying, people in the church are saying, I had a vision, God gave me this vision. And so other people naturally feel like they need to follow this person because there's some kind of authority because God spoke directly to them because God gave them a vision. And so really what you're doing is you're you're keeping people captive as Paul warns about in verse eight. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, also according to self-made religion. I could tell you that God gave me a vision and here's what it was and then that can hold you captive to my vision and really it may just be me. And I could be using God. He says, puffed up without reason. Spiritual, religious experience can puff us up. It can make us feel more holy than others who haven't had certain religious or spiritual experience. And so we can hold it over them. And really what it's doing is inflating our our sense of pride. And he says, without reason, by a sensuous mind. So that was happening here in the church 2,000 years ago. It's still happening today, is it not? I mean, people have certain worship experiences and and praise God that he meets all of us in different places. Some of us are wired more emotionally. Some of us more intellectually. Some people connect with God in one environment better than another environment. And we can't start judging one another and comparing against each other and saying, if you really want to meet God, you have to come into this setting or this space or this context. You need to have this type of religious experience. You need to worship with this type of music or that type of music or you need to have a vision or you need to get this vision or you need to pray and ask that God would reveal to you something that he would give you an experience that would help you to know that you know that you know that you know. And so Paul is warning them and, by extension, us to be careful of adding things to the finished work of Jesus because it's by Christ alone that we are saved. So he's warning the church, we're saved in Jesus alone. I mean, we unpacked it last week, but verses 13 through 15 show us that, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. It was Jesus in Christ, in Christ alone, not religious experience, not, the other, not religious observance. It's not Jesus and those things that we do. It's Jesus. We need to be very careful about this in the church. Paul warns us of that. He, he knows that we as people tend to judge one another. That we as people tend to think others need our same experience, our same convictions, our same attitudes and approach to things. And, and really, I think it's a timely word for us, the church in America in 2017, as, as um, a, a um, guy who wrote a book, named Christian Smith said a few years ago. He, he kind of labeled the church nowadays and those of us who grew up in the church, some of you millennials, this would define you, that we grew up with moral therapeutic deism. And so what he's saying about the church now, and I, and I think this is really true in my own experience, that what we do is we add to Jesus kind of being a good person, that really the, the intent of the Christian or the hope for the Christian is now that we become morally good people. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. You become moral, that's kind of the therapy that you start feeling good about yourself and God is removed. He created the world, set it in motion, and he's told you now to clean your life up and be a good person. And so churches have become very religious. I mean, as, as he warns us here in verse 23, he says, these things have an appearance of wisdom. It has an appearance of wisdom. And in fact, there might be wisdom in saying, you should really think twice before going to that movie. Or you should really think twice before listening to that music or listening to it over and over again for enjoyment rather than understanding. You should really think through these things. We should give consideration to our religious observance. Is it worth coming to church on a Sunday morning and observing this time together? Is it worth holding on to that? I believe so, yeah. Does it, does it get you right in God's eyes? Can we start judging one another for our different schedules and for our personal convictions? No. Is it worth thinking through things to abstain from? I shouldn't watch this. I shouldn't listen to that. I'm not going to do this in this season of my life. I'm going to give that up in this season of my life. Yes, it's absolutely worth doing that. It has the appearance of wisdom. Also, it has wisdom. I think what Paul is saying, it has the appearance of wisdom. He's warning us that If we think it through and we come up with something helpful for us, we can't lord it over others so that we appear wise, we appear spiritual, we're being puffed up in our spiritual pride and others start to just try and follow us and do what we do rather than spending time with God and saying, what would you have me abstain from? And bringing that to a community and wrestling through that together as a community. And there's wisdom in thinking through our religious experience. What type of songs should we sing? What type of environment should we be in? What type of prayer experiences should we have? How does God meet us there? How does God speak to us there? But again, Paul's warning us not to build it up. And our churches can become very judgmental over these things. And, and really what I think happens with this moralistic, moral therapeutic deism is it leads to like five, five things. Here's the five things that I think it creates in a church culture. Thoughtless obedience thoughtless obedience. If we are legalists or if we try and judge others based off of our personal convictions, it can create thoughtless obedience. Basically, if I have a forceful personality and the appearance of holiness, I can tell other people what I do to grow in my spiritual walk and keep them, and they will, they may obey. They may obey my self-made religion I can say, here's the things that I add to Jesus, here's how I grow in my spiritual life, and they might start doing it, and they may be thoughtless in their obedience. They may be doing what someone else is doing, or doing even what they're supposed to be doing without any thought whatsoever. And that creates robots. I don't know about you, but I don't want my kids to obey thoughtlessly, I want them to obey joyfully. I want my kids to think for themselves about what's good and right and wrong, and I want to help influence them and shape them. I don't want them to thoughtlessly obey me. That's terrifying. That's how cults get created. That's how people get hurt. And oftentimes in the church, we have people who thoughtlessly obey. They assume that a pastor or a priest or a pope knows all the things. Honestly, this happens in the Catholic Church, and this isn't a shot against the Catholic Church. We have brothers and sisters who are Catholic, who love Jesus, but in my first year of college, I dated a Catholic girl for two weeks. And um, <laughs> it lasted two weeks because I, I, I knew that I was supposed to be There's a passage in Scripture that talks about being equally yoked. That means believers marrying and being with believers and non-believers. That's fine for you to be together. But a Christian and a non-Christian should not get married. And although it was, I, we were dating for two weeks, I knew that passage. I grew up with that. And I asked this girl once if she, I was over at her apartment and we were sitting around and I was like, let's read the Bible together. And I said, do you have a Bible? We should read it. And she's like, no, why would I have a Bible? Why would we do that? The priest does that for me. Thoughtless obedience. She would go to mass. She was told what to do. She didn't question. She didn't wrestle with, she didn't read for herself. And I said, we should probably call this thing off because I'm feeling convicted that I'm dating you because of your looks rather than your substance. Um... (laughs) Anyway, thoughtless obedience, begrudging submission. So you thoughtlessly obey or you submit begrudgingly. This is like the pouty child syndrome. I have some children. They can be a little bit pouty. Sometimes I have to force submission, and this isn't like physically forced submission, but sometimes I have to get very stern with them. And force them to do by repetition and by consequence. I have to force them to get to do what I desire them to do. And they will submit, but it's begrudgingly. It's with a scowl on their face. It's pouty. That's not what God wants from us, his kids. And so we have to be careful with religious tradition, with self-made religion, because it can create people who thoughtlessly obey, people who are begrudging in their submission. It can also create just rebels. I mean, if we are all about the rules, all about the law, all about submission, all about adding our religious, self made religion to Jesus, it can create rebels. People who are like, the church is fake. They have all these rules. These people don't follow those rules. I'm going exactly the other way. They told me to do this. I'm going to do that. They told me to do this. I'm going to do that. They told me to do this. I'm going to do that. It creates rebels. It also can create people who are just indifferent, they don't care. They grew up with the rules. They grew up with the structure. They grew up with self-made religion, people adding things to the finished work of Jesus. And they said, it all seems kind of fake. And I just, I just don't care anymore. I'm just going to give up. I'm not against it. I just, it's not for me. I tried religion. It doesn't work. Or it can create confusion. People who just don't know. They've heard conflicting teachings and different traditions and different self-made religions. One church says this. Another church says that. These people say this. These people say that. I just, I'm confused. I don't know how to grow as a Christian. I want to grow as a Christian, but I don't know what religious experience, I don't know what religious teaching, I don't know what rules I'm supposed to follow in order to grow. And isn't that the point? As Christians, we want to grow. We want to grow in our experience with our knowledge of our love of God, our Father. And he wants that for us as well. And so the question is, if we know that that rules, experience, if all these, if religious experience, if it, religious abstinence and religious observance has the appearance of wisdom, but is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, as we're told here. So Paul says they, they have the appearance of wisdom, and they may have nuggets of wisdom, but in and of themselves they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, or no value in stopping sin. How then do we grow? If you're a Christian sitting here today, you're probably thinking, I want to grow in my relationship with God. I want to grow in my obedience, and I want it to be a joyful obedience. I don't want it to be begrudging obedience or thoughtless obedience. I want to grow. And if you're a non-Christian sitting here today, I'm praying and hoping that you would see the glorious life that Jesus has for you, that you would submit to him and follow him. As verse 6 says, that you would receive him as Lord and walk in him. So that's first step. If you haven't received him, receive him. He has an abundant life for you. And then after you receive him, you'll start to ask, what does it mean for me to grow as a Christian? How do I grow spiritually? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So obedience is important. But if it doesn't work through self-made religion, how do we do it? The text has an answer for us. We do it by holding fast to Jesus, our head, our substance, and our sanctifier. It's all about Christ. It's all in Christ, in Christ and Christ alone. This is what Paul is saying. Look at verse 19. So coming out of asceticism and mysticism and spiritual experience, he's saying that it puffs us up without reason and a sensuous mind. So we're just kind of led by our emotions. This is emotionalism, spiritual experience that's not tied to anything. He says, you're following a sensuous mind. You want experiences that feel spiritual but may not be rooted. And then verse 19, he says that the opposite, what you are doing, what you are failing to do is that you're not holding fast to the head. Jesus, the head in Colossians chapter one, verse 18. Paul has already told us and written, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body the church. He is our head. He holds us together. He tells us how and where and when to move. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus is the head. Our spiritual transformation, our spiritual growth starts with thinking about who God is and what is right and true and lovely and honorable. It doesn't start with our experiences, it doesn't start with our observances. It doesn't start with whatever the third thing that I said was earlier. It, it, is, it is Jesus, the head. We hold fast to him. It's Jesus plus, and we may put some things in there that help aid in our salvation, and they don't aid in our salvation, nothing does. Jesus plus nothing equals everything for salvation. And Jesus plus, some, some, some stuff may help in sanctification. That means growing more and more like Jesus. But they are a byproduct of Jesus the head telling us what to do through prayer, through his word in community, saying, God, what would help me grow? I want to grow as a Christian. I want to be connected to Jesus. I want the abundant life that God has for me to be lived out in my attitudes, in my actions, in my thoughts. How do I do this? Don't jump in accountability group. First go to Jesus. Open his word. Say, okay, Jesus my head. Help me think. Help me think soundly, not sensuously, but soundly. What would you have me do? Bring it to community. Bring it to people and say, I want to grow in my experience, in my observance, in my, I, I want to grow spiritually. Help me think this through. What would Jesus, our head, have us do? And Paul goes on to say that, so we hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. It's a growth from God. God, not a growth from religion. It's a growth from him leading us, our head, telling us where to look, telling us how to move, not other people, not religious rules, not self-made religion, but Jesus. So the head helps us to grow. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Next one's our substance. As verse 16 and 17 said, or again, Paul's not condemning the Old Testament practice, He's not saying you have to stop observing the Sabbath. You have to stop observing the festivals. Um, you, you can still think critically about what you eat and what you drink. Just remember that these are a shadow. Don't build a relationship with the shadow. The shadow doesn't care about you. The shadow will and does cease to exist. But Christ, the substance, is forever. As Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 and 18 says that, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever. So Jesus is our substance. We hold fast to him as our substance. We don't cling to the rules and to the shadows and hold on to them and, and grasp on to them and say, if I don't do my devotions in the morning, I'm going to lose my salvation. No, no, no. That's a shadow. A, a morning devotional time is a shadow to help you savor the substance. You don't lose your salvation if you, if you lose the shadow. Okay? It points you to Jesus, the substance. And so we cling to him. We hold fast to our head. We hold fast to the substance. And Jesus is our sanctifier. And that's really what this entire passage is getting at. Sanctifier. To be sanctified means to be made holy. To become like Jesus. And so we believe that justification is a one-time event. When you place your faith in Jesus, as verse 6 says again, when you receive Jesus as your Lord, you are justified. God the Father looks at you and he says, all of the sin that you've done is forgiven. Again, that's verse 13, 14, and 15. It's all forgiven. The record of debt that you have is forgiven. It's gone. It's canceled. Jesus nailed it to the cross. You are justified in God's sight. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to listen to Christian music. You don't have to say no to certain things and follow religious taboo in order for God to accept you. He's accepted you through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, but how are we transformed? By holding to Jesus the head. He sanctifies us. He works out this justification, this this holiness. He makes us more like his son, Jesus Christ, as we hold to him, from whom the whole body nourished and knit. Think about substance, the word substance that we just talked about. Nourished, substance. What does substance do? It nourishes us. Years back, God convicted me on, on just how I was eating. I eat more for enjoyment than for nourishment and I still do. It's a continual problem. I just love apple fritters more than apples. It's just the reality of life. But God convicted me that my primary intake of food should be for nourishment, not enjoyment. doesn't mean that I can't enjoy the food that I eat, and that there's not times and seasons when I can do that, but he has provided food, substance, for me to be nourished. God has provided Jesus, his one and only son, as the substance that would nourish us that would help us to grow. And it says that we are knit together through our joints and ligaments, and we grow with a growth that is from God. This growth comes from God, not from religious tradition, not from self-made religion. Verse, 19, verse 20, Paul goes on to say, if, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You are dead to the effects of sin in the world and to the temptations of the world. So foster this love for Christ, this, this spirit of Christ in you. And you're not going to grow spiritually by creating rules of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Verse 21. Referring to the things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh so to grow spiritually it's Jesus we come to Jesus we ask of Jesus to lead us we we take Jesus as our substance we believe that all the other things are shadows so we don't get married to the shadow we don't camp on the shadow but we embrace Jesus the substance And then we trust that He sanctifies us, that as verse 19 says, that He actually works out His plan, that we grow spiritually with a growth that's from God, not that's from religion or handed down from man. And so this morning as we turn to communion, I want you to think about that word substance. I mean, these elements are a shadow. They're a shadow of Christ, the substance, the the cracker that we're going to pass, it's I mean, it is a substance, right? But it's a, it's a shadow. As soon as you eat it and then pass it, it's gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's a shadow. But it points us to Jesus, the one who is forevermore. Again, as Hebrew says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we take that cracker, it's a shadow pointing us to the substance, Jesus Christ, the one who, who saved us by canceling our debt with its legal demands and nailing it to the cross. And as we take the cup, which we will, which we will do after the cracker comes out, it's, it's a shadow. It's not the real thing. It's not Christ's blood, but it's a reminder. It's a shadow pointing us to the fact that Jesus shed his blood on our behalf, in our place, for the forgiveness of our sins. If we desire to grow spiritually, We don't do it by adding on all kinds of extracurricular rules and activities. But we hold fast to Jesus the head. We embrace Jesus as our substance. We actually take him in as our substance. We trust his sufficiency. And then we allow him to sanctify us, to work out in us what he would work out within us. And and again, it's all tied into the body. I mean, this isn't you and Jesus going it alone. Verse 19, it's this this church community project. We need one another. And so we're here to help one another, to help give each other guardrails, to help encourage one another, to help build each other up. To help remind one another that as we sing in Christ alone, we need to live and believe and act as though our salvation is found in Christ alone. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come up, and the communion servers are going to come up, and we're going to pass out the elements the cracker first and, and take it as you do, um, just hold it and think about how it represents Christ. But it's a shadow. This religious observance doesn't grant you favor and good standing with God. Jesus, the one who, repre- who, who this represents, did that already for you. This is merely a shadow, but Jesus, the substance. So as it comes, hold it, think about what that represents, what that means to you, and when you're ready, take it where you're at. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is for you. If you're unsure, I'd love to talk to you about what these elements represent at more length later on today, but we ask that you just abstain from it, or you can receive Jesus Christ right now by placing your faith and trust in him. So as these elements come, remember, it's a shadow that points us to the substance. The cracker will come, take it when you're ready, and then the cup will come, take that when you're ready and be considering what Jesus means to you as you do that. Let's pray. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus, we thank you that we have substance in you. We thank you that we are saved by you and by you alone. Lord, I I repent for when I add things to you and when I judge others according to what I think rather than what you've commanded and you've willed and you've worked out through your word and God, I pray that all of us here this morning would just embrace you as the substance, as the head, as the sanctifier. That we would step back and and allow the life that you lived, the perfect life and the death that you died, the death for sin, and, and you overcame sin and death in the grave. And now, as Colossians says, that you, the hope of glory, are within us. That if we believe that Christ has been raised, we are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so as we take this communion, these elements, these shadows that remind us of you, the substance, I pray that you would in fact whisper into our ear what is true about you and about us. And I pray that these shadows would remind us of you, the one who is our substance, the one who nourishes our soul. And I pray now that this time of worship would be nourishing to us, that we would experience you living in us, the hope of glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.